0: And we'll read um, a good chunk of the chapter here. We won't read the whole thing, but just follow along here. I'll direct you accordingly. Verse 1 is where we'll begin. The Bible says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who hast set thy glory above the heaven. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger when I consider thy heavens. The work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Down in verse nine, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. I'm going to preach a sermon tonight entitled this, How Prayer Changes Me. How prayer Changes me. Let's pray. God, I ask tonight that you would take this sermon. I'm, Lord, I'm excited, as excited about preaching this message as I have been any sermon in a long time. And Lord, I pray that the concept would be conveyed in a way that will move us and change us and make us more committed to prayer lives. And God, if we are ritualistically religious but not praying, then we're wasting our time. May we be people of prayer. And may tonight, as the case is laid out for how prayer changes the prayer, or may we be convinced to buy into a life of prayer. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. We think of the topic of prayer, we, we think of our endeavor to get God's attention... And uh, get Him to do things for us. For us. Um, our prayers are often geared with this concept of, of having God revolve around us and our needs. We pray for our needs. Uh, we pray so that God will, will please us. We oftentimes forget that God was not created to revolve around us. Rather, we were created to revolve around God. We were created to pleasure Him, to please Him, and we were created to honor, honor God. Now, there are a couple of instances in this large book called the Bible where prayer the prayers of a man moved the heart of God in such a way that he actually changed his mind. Alright? Uh, this has happened just a handful of times in the Scriptures. It doesn't happen very often, but it has happened. Let me give you a couple examples of this. We won't look at all of them. Let's look at a couple examples of where, where God changed his mind because of a prayer. Alright? And uh, uh, turn over to Exodus chapter 32. Hold your place in Psalm 8. Exodus chapter 32. God had uh had enough with the Israelites. He was fed up. He was ready to wipe them out and start over with Moses. He was ready to forget the covenant and promises he'd made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he was ready to excuse that by saying, "I will keep my promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by uh having you, Moses, start a new uh people group because I am fed up with these people and I'm going to wipe them out." And um, uh, Moses, uh, well, let's look at it here. Look at verse nine and 30, chapter 32. The Bible says, and the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked or a stubborn people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them and that I may consume them and I will make of thee a great nation. And Moses, here we see the prayer besought the Lord, his God and said, Lord, Why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people? Which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief he he did bring them out, and to slay them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth. Uh, Turn from thy fierce wrath, and repent of this evil against thy people. Remember Abraham, and Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and saidest unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven. And all this land have I spoken of, will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. Look at verse 30, look at verse 14. The Bible says, And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do, do unto his people. Here God was going to wipe out the complaining, rebellious, murmuring, stiff-necked, stubborn Israelites, And he was going to start over with Moses. Moses got on his face and said, Whoa! Hold up just a minute here. Here are one, two, three, four reasons why you can't do that. And God listened to Moses and actually changed his mind. God repented. Now, we think of repentance as being a leaving of evil and turning to good. And uh, God was not going to be committing sin by wiping them out. But repentance is simply a changing of the mind and moses was able to convince god to change his mind turn over to jonah chapter three jonah chapter three let me show you another instance and again there are a couple of others but uh for uh sake of time we'll keep it just to these two uh where god changed his mind again because of great prayer and uh what i'm trying to get out here is that yes For someone to stand up and preach and say, prayer changes the heart of God, or prayer can change the mind of God, that is uh, an accurate statement because we have examples of that in Scripture, but that is not primarily the purpose of prayer. Look at Jonah chapter 3, look at verse 5. The Bible says, so the people of Nineveh believed God, and they proclaimed a fast, "...and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from the throne, and laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, cloth, Here's the prayer, and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hand. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger, anger that we perish not? And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. So through their prayer, again, God repented of his actions. He changed his mind, which led to a change of actions. And God did not punish the Ninevites for their sin, even though he would have been just to do it. Um, Our prayers that we pray, if we pray fervently and regularly, they very much can alter the heart of God. They very much can alter God's heart. I've heard many sermons that address change, uh, God's change through prayer. But in my 34 years of church attendance, I have heard very, very, very few sermons that talk about how prayer changes the Christian. Prayer changes the Christian. And tonight I want us to focus on how God, uh, on how God can change you through a consistent prayer life. Yes, if you, Pray often enough and fervently enough, you will move God to repentance or change at certain points of your prayer life. But God does, don't miss this. This is the foundation of the sermon. God does not need to change his character. We do. So our prayers has no altering effect on the character of God. But if we pray consistently, and we pray fervently, and we pray regularly, and we have seasons of lengthy prayer in our lives, it will change our character. And I can say this, there's not a person in here that your character does not need to be altered in some way. We all need we all need to be straightened up and made more like our Savior Jesus Christ. Prayer changes the mind of God, but more importantly, prayer ought to change the character of the Christian. So let's look at the five areas of prayer tonight and consider several thoughts uh, 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 about those areas of prayer that can change us. Some time back, I preached a sermon outlining the five categories in which I pray I gave you those five categories. So, tonight what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back. I'm going to give you those five categories again. And I'm going to show you how God can change you as you pray consistently and regularly through these five categories. So, point number one is my praise time. My praise time. So, how can God change you, change me as I pray or you pray as you spend time in prayer Praising God. All right, letter A. I'm going to give you several under each one of these five here. Letter A, notice that my praise time offers perspective. My praise time offers perspective. Um, The first type of way it offers perspective, it offers perspective, perspective of who God is. Offers perspective of who God is. Go back to Psalm 8 with me there in your Bibles. Hopefully you held your spot. Psalm 8, look at verse number 1. Notice the psalmist, one of the reasons why I love the psalms is a lot of them are prayers. The psalmist praying and talking to God. It's written out in a poetic way on paper, Hebrew poetry here. And we get one of those prayers of the psalmist, uh, most likely David. Uh, I believe it was David. I believe it even says so there in the psalm. But where he is praying uh, a praise, we see his praise time here in the Bible. Look at verse 1. O Lord... Our Lord. Alright, so we see right off the bat, he's calling God his Lord. That means you're the boss and I'm the servant. You're the master, I'm the servant. You call the shots and I work to obey. You are my Lord. Praise time. Look here. How excellent, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. He is bragging on God. He is saying, God, let me keep in perspective who you are who you are so uh it offers perspective at when we spend time each day praising god for who he is and listing off the attributes of god and talking about the names of god it gives us proper perspective of just how big and powerful and awesome and mighty our god is but not only does it offer perspective of who he is it also offers a perspective of who i am of who i am look down at verse three and four When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? Can I tell you how I've always pictured this psalm from the time I was a little guy reading it? I picture David down underneath the tree with his harp, watching sheep, clear skies, staring up at the stars. He's singing to the Lord. He's praising God. And he spends some time praising God for how excellent and awesome He is. And as he's staring up at these... Stars that he can't count. As he's looking out at the sheep, and as he's thinking about how complex the world around him is, as he's thinking about how big and strong and mighty and awesome God is, it emotionally hits him like a ton of bricks. Uh, Who am I anyway? God, you are everything. And I'm just a little pipsqueak. Nothing. What is man? Thou art mindful of him. In his praise time, it brought him to a realization that I'm really not much of anything. Now, I've said this before, I'll say it again here. I could draw a line on this back wall of the sharpie, I'm not going to do that. But I could do it and put an arrow on each end from corner to corner. And that represents the eternality of our God. He is without beginning, he's without end. He's always been, he always will be. I can't comprehend that. I can comprehend being without end. I can't comprehend without being, uh, someone being without beginning. Everything we know, materialistically, uh, 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 personally, every human we know, every animal we know, every object we know, had a starting point, had a, 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 a date of origin, but not God. You and I, on the grand scheme of eternity, we're a little blip on the radar. A little blip on the radar. And we think that we're everything. How dare you treat me that way, God? Excuse me, God's always been, always will be, and you're just as... As far as your flesh goes, you're just a little, this little blip on the radar. And and David here came to a realization. I believe he had an epiphany. And he said, what is man? What is man? What does consistent prayer time and praising God and going through the attributes of who God is, what does that do? How does that change me? It offers a perspective of just how big he is and how little I am. Let her be noticed that it brings about worship. It brings about worship. As I look back over my Christian life, I can say this uh, emphatically, that when I have not had much of a prayer life, I've not really done much of worshiping God. Not really done a whole lot of worshiping God. Oh, yeah, there's the corporate worship where you come in and sit on the pew and you take up your 18, 24, 36, 48, however many inches it is you take up, and uh, you... uh, You open the song book and you stand up and you sing. And maybe the song will move you. uh, Maybe a a special musical movie or the choir special will move you. And maybe the sermon will move you a little bit. And you might have a small moment of corporate worship. Um, By the way, churches that emphasize worship. Worship. and, And it's an emotional experience. Be careful about that. Listen, true worship... Uh, uh, and I'm for corporate worship. We want corporate worship here. But your greatest worship should not be done in the presence of others. It ought to be done alone in the presence of you and your God in your prayer closet. And when you're really walking with God and you're really spending time with Him, what, how will it change you? It changes you in a way that every day you have that time of worship. That realization that God, you're everything and I'm Nothing. And it offers a great perspective. It brings about worship. So as I as I spend time praising God, I begin to change. I begin to see the world very differently. My worldviews begin to come in line with the Bible and with God. So we see there, number one, we see my praise time. Notice number two, my confession of sin. How does taking time to confess my sin thoroughly and accurately every day How does that change me? Well, letter A, notice it reminds me of God's holiness. Turn over to Psalm chapter 51 in your Bible. We're done with Psalm chapter 8, by the way. Psalm 51. Turn over there. Here we find David. He had committed adultery. He had been with Bathsheba, another man's wife, and he had been caught. Not only had he committed adultery, he also committed murder. And uh, Nathan, the bony fingered prophet, comes and shoves his finger in, in David's face and he says, Thou art the man. You, a man of plenty, have taken from someone who had little. Thou art the man. And because of your sin, God is going to kill your child. David uh, goes into a time of deep contrition and uh, offering sincere apology to god for his sin and that apology part a portion of that apology is recorded in the as the 51st psalm and we see here that during david's time of apology he uh uh, uh he was uh, reminded of god's holiness look down at verse number four it says against thee thee only have i sinned and Done this evil in thy sight, look at this, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. What was David admitting here about God's holiness? He was saying, God, your judgments on me are perfect. There are a whole lot of Christians who get bitter toward God because something happened in their life. Let me tell you right now, if that's happening to you, you are identifying yourself as someone who does not pray properly. Because as you confess your sin, and as you do it properly, you are reminded that God is holy and perfect. and God is a perfect judge that cannot make a mistake in a courtroom, court of law. We see here that not only was uh, uh, David reminded that God was a perfect judge, but he was reminded that God epitomizes truth and wisdom. Look down at verse 6. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden parts thou shalt make me to know wisdom. He looked at God he said, God, really all you expect out of me is to find truth in my heart. And what you expect out of me is that you want your wisdom inside of me. What was David saying? God, you're holy. You're holy. This is my confession of my sin. And I acknowledge that you are a perfect judge first. The second thing I acknowledge is that you are truth. You are wisdom. You epitomize those things. You are those things. Notice here that um, uh, a part of that uh, being reminded of God's holiness is that He recognized uh, that God hates the very sight of sin. Look at verse 9 Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. How much does God hate your sin? He doesn't even want to look at it. He can't even stand the sight of it. I think about when Jesus was hanging on the cross and He became our sins. What happened? The sky turned black. Why did the sky turn black? Because God the Father could not stand to look at His own Son. He turned His back on His Son and the sky turned black. Why? Because God is the light of the world. Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? And here, David is saying, God, don't even look at my sins. Hide your face from it. What was David saying? David was saying, I realize that you are holy. You are without sin. Not only did David recognize that God was the perfect judge and that God epitomizes truth and wisdom and that God hates the very sight of sin. But here in the 51st Psalm, we see that he admitted that his very spirit, the very spirit of God is holy. Look at verse 11. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Now, this is very important. This is not talking about, at least in my opinion, this is not talking about the the Holy Spirit of the New Testament. This is talking about the, the little s spirit that God himself has about himself as being an individual. And if you believe that means the Holy Spirit, that's fine. I, I, you'd be hard pressed to find evidence that the Holy Spirit would have indwelled David. David was... Uh, David was uh, an Old Testament believer. They didn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling him. But I believe what he's saying here is that, uh, take not thy Holy Spirit away from me. Take not the Spirit of holiness away from me. I I want your Spirit of holiness around me and and, uh, abiding in me, uh, with me. He's saying to God, your very Spirit is Holy. When I pray and I get down on my knees and I go through the, the sins of my eyes and the sins of my ears and the sins of my heart, the sins of my mind and the sins of my mouth and the sins of my body, uh, I am reminded of just how holy and perfect that God is. And that changes me. But not only does my confession time remind me of God's holiness, my confession time, it, it, humiliate, it, it humiliates me. humiliates me. Look down at verse 12. Psalm fifty one twelve, restore unto me the joy of my salvation, of thy salvation rather, and uphold me with thy free spirit. You know where David was right here? He had no joy. His spirit was lower than a snake's belly in a wagon rut. He was empty. He was empty. You know why? He was humiliated. Totally humiliated. Um most Christians have a very aloof spirit toward sin. They uh they sin and uh whatever. They complain and uh whatever. They uh cuss and all uh, whatever. They take God's name in vain and uh it's it's you know, no big deal. They tell a lie and oh it was just a white lie, they excuse it away, they justify their sin. But you know what happens when you get down on your knees and you confess your sin every day, and you're thorough with God, it brings you to a point of humiliation. God, I, I can't, I can't. You ever been humiliated? You ever had somebody call you out for something? I'll share a story really quick, and this is um, maybe one of the times in my life I was the most humiliated. Bible College, we had uh, divisions in the bus ministry. It was a very large bus ministry. And there were Sundays we brought over 10,000 boys and girls and men and women on the buses to church. That's just the college kids would bring that many in. And I've been on bus routes that had two, three hundred people come off one bus route. Multiple buses running on a single bus route on a big day. And uh, my wife... Uh, she, she didn't want me saying this. i say it anyway. She won bus contests uh, as a lady worker in the whole college for uh, her and her partner bringing more people to church than anybody else. Her and her lady worker would filled up a bus all on their own. And uh, we, we had a huge bus ministry there, and I was part of a division. Uh, one of the divisions that had broken down into several different divisions. I was in Division 14. I was on bus route 80-8. They had the buses numbered for organizational reasons. And uh, uh, so every Saturday morning we'd get up, and we would – uh, uh, have a meeting as the uh, bus ministry as a whole, and then we would have a division meeting with our division leader, and they would run, the division leaders would run that meeting much like a church service. I didn't like it. I thought it was pointless. Let's just get out there and visit, visit the bus route, but hey, you know, they have their reasons, and so whatever. Uh, the division leader came to me and he said, I want you to sing a special in the division meeting. I said, okay, yeah, whatever you say. So I signed up for it. And um, you know, I think it was a sophomore that year. I had never been late to a bus meeting, never been late to a division meeting. But uh, that Friday night, they worked us till like two in the morning. And so I stumbled into the dorms, after working out in the cold, and uh, I overslept the division meeting. Overslept the division meeting. I missed my my so important special. Oh, it was so important. Well, that next, uh, that next day, we uh, dropped all the bus kids off, the, the teenagers off. Uh, it was late in the evening. All the preacher boys from our division were sitting on that bus. We're riding back to the, the uh, church from Chicago, uh, back to Hammond, Indiana. And our division leader got up, and our division leader was a strong-willed, stubborn, mean old miser of a man. And if you messed up, buddy, he would call you out. Call you out. And so he gets up and I mean, I think he walked around with a clipboard and took notes of all the mistakes everybody made all weekend. And he, uh, he got up and he's just letting us have it about how terrible we are, calling us a bunch of maggots. I think he may have been a drill instructor in a previous lifetime because this, he sure seemed like it. He, he would have put some drill instructors to shame with, with the way he was going on. And he finally looks down at me and he says, Richard! He said, you were supposed to sing at a vision meeting and you overslept, you lazy bum. I was humiliated. Totally humiliated. Bus full of 25, 30 other college guys. Um, That really hurt my spirit. You know, God is a gentleman. And he's not going to humiliate you like that. But if you're honest with yourself about your sin, it ought to humiliate you. I'm grateful for God's grace, and I'm grateful I understand it. Because if I didn't, I would have a hard time not being depressed over how depraved and sinful I am. A lot of our contention would leave if we would just daily confess, regularly confess our sins. My confession time, it reminds me of God's holiness. It humiliates me. Let her see, it humbles my spirit toward others. Look at verse 5. Humbles my spirit toward others. Look at verse 5 of Psalm 51. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You know what David is saying here? I'm part of a human race that's fallen. I sin because it is my nature, and everybody else around me sins because their nature says to do that. Many relational problems are seated in a forgetfulness that they are nothing more than flawed dirt. You know, if, if uh, Mark over here lets me have it tonight after church, and I go home and I'm just stewing over it, and I say, that Mark Bonatonimus he is one filthy piece of dirt. You know what? So am I. You don't get along with someone else. The truth is, they're flawed just like you are. Here's what happens. I walk into the presence of God, and every day I get down on my knees and I say, God, I did this and this and this and this. And I'm very explicit when I go over my sin with God. I don't hide things from Him. I've shared that with you before. I'll share it again here. And you know what I'm expecting God to do? I'm expecting Him to forgive me. I'm going to God, and I'm laying out my sin there. And I'm saying, I blew it, I blew it, I blew it, I blew it. And I'm counting on the fact that He's going to forgive me. Now, what am I to do to get up off my knees and have a run-in with another Christian and go, I'm never going to forgive him? Well, wait a minute. I'm not going to forgive him or her. But the next morning, I'm going to get back down on my knees and expect God to forgive me? What? Some of you... Can't forgive somebody else in this church or somebody else in your life who hurt you years ago or maybe even weeks ago or maybe even tonight. And what you're showing your true colors are is that you don't really count on God to forgive you or you would forgive them. You see how prayer changes me? By me getting down on my knees and daily confessing my sins and really momentarily when I commit a sin, dropping my head and saying, Lord, I blew it. Please forgive me. I'm counting on God's grace. That makes me say, hey, listen, I'm going to have a humble spirit toward others that offend me. And just like I expect God to extend grace to me, I'm going to extend grace to others. A contentious church is a church that doesn't pray and confess her sin. A contentious Christian is a Christian that does not pray. And confess his or her sin. What does my confession time do? How does it change me? Well, it humbles my spirit toward others. And helps me to understand that they're flawed. And it helps me to quickly forgive and move on. I might be stepping on your toes tonight. But I promise you, I'm trying to help you. Maybe this is a wake up call that you need to get consistent in confessing that sin. Oh, there are so many benefits from it. Number three, notice my thanks time. How does taking time to be thankful to God help me? Turn over to the, the 100th Psalm. So we have looked at the 8th Psalm, the 51st Psalm. I'll turn over to the 100th Psalm. Again, the book of Psalms is a, a book of songs, but they're, they're prayerful songs. Um, they're songs of, of, of prayer, many of them. And so we can look at the psalmist who had a praise time, who had confession time, and who had a, a time of thanksgiving and we can learn a lot from that. Uh, letter A, notice that uh, my thanks time eliminates complaining. Eliminates complaining. Look at, look at Psalm 100, verse 1. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Look at verse 3. Know ye that the Lord, He is God. It is He that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people. And the sheep of his pasture. I have in my Bible the words, know ye, marked. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. Now, a regular time of thanking God for the good things in our lives helps us to know, to know that the Lord is good. Lord is good. Your flesh is very negative. Very naturally negative. It's very easy to complain. It's very easy to get bothered and upset. It's very easy to see the negative in others. It's very easy to see the negative in yourself. Uh, some of you here can't forgive yourself because you don't understand that God's forgiven you. Some of you here uh, are very negative on yourself, very pessimistic toward yourself. By the way, bragging on yourself is rooted in pride. Being overly negative on yourself is also rooted in pride. But what does spending time every day getting on my knees and saying, Lord, thank you for this, and thank you for this, and thank you for this, and thank you for this. this." What does taking time to expound to God and explain to God how thankful you are for the good things that He's put in your life, how does that help you? Well, it really helps you to know that God is good. You know, if you go days and weeks and months without having uh, uh, time on your knees being thankful to God, you begin to get your perspective warped. You begin to focus on all the negative in your life and then you cease to really know how good God is. If you get down on your knees every day and you say, Lord, I'm so thankful for the blessings you've poured on my life, you keep proper perspective on how good God is and it eliminates complaining. Um, practically, practically, it's very difficult. You listening? Very difficult to get off of your knees after thanking God for how good He's been to you and go right to complaining. Very hard. Could it be that the number one sin that the members of White Oak Baptist Church are guilty of individually is complaining? Do you complain? If so, you need to step your thanks time up. How does prayer change me? Well, the more I spend time on my knees thanking God for the goodness in my life, the whole lot harder complaining becomes because it's eliminated. A constant knowledge of how good God is, constant knowledge of that, a constant reminder of that, a constant putting that in the forefront of our brain, boy, it eliminates complaining. My thanks time, not only does it eliminate complaining, it also elevates my blessings. Elevates my blessings. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is... Read that next word out loud together with me. Ready? The Lord is good. Every time I pause, read the word out loud and Be be uh, uh, enthusiastic about it. Ready? His mercy is everlasting and His truth endureth to all generations. Now, in verse 1, the psalmist begins by thanking God. For the good in his life. By the time he gets down to the end of the psalm, he's using words like good and everlasting and endureth. What's he doing here? Uh, when we focus on our blessings, it helps elevate those blessings and elevate our spirits. I, I remember one time I was trying to help somebody out of a deep, dark place in their life. And I, I told them very emphatically and very forcefully. I was very frustrated with him, And I said... Uh, uh, go get a piece of paper and a pencil. And When you are seated at a table, that in front of you we will begin. And so the person went and got it and sat down and I said, I want you to write down 100 things you're thankful for. The person said, I don't have 100 things to be thankful for. I said, start writing! I said, you do! That person did not go through that exercise that night, but eventually that person did. What that person found is that they had way more than a hundred things to be thankful for. We get focused on how hard our lives is, but our lives are rather. But we forget. Good night, folks. We live in one of the richest countries in the world during one of the richest periods ever. We wear watches on our wrists that Dick Tracy. War and we're science fictions as some of us we got smartphones that are smarter than most of us are uh we got cars that soon will be driving themselves we have homes that are now turning into smart homes and uh we uh, we've got roofs over our head we've got jobs work we've got food in our stomachs we eat uh, better than kings of most countries did in in, in past days we have so much good And you know what? When you begin thanking God, not only does it eliminate the complaining, but the blessings begin to become elevated. And as the blessings are elevated, your spirit becomes elevated. You get up off your knees. You have a big smile on your face. You have a deep peace in your heart. God is beginning to change you. He's beginning to rip away that complaining spirit, that pessimistic negative spirit. He's beginning to grow in you and elevate in you a heart of thankfulness. Not only does my thanks time eliminate complaining, not only does my thanksgiving time elevate my blessings, letter C, notice that my thanks time eliminates spiritual depression. Look at verse 4 of Psalm 100. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his... Name. I don't want anybody to misconstrue what I'm about to say, so please listen carefully. And if you're going to leave here and repeat me, please repeat me correctly, all right? Most depression, not all, most depression in the hearts of the human population in 2018, most of it is a direct result of sinful living and uh, sinful, godless thinking. Most of it. Now, there is chemical depression and imbalances in the brain. I get that. I understand that. And so uh, there are people who dot all their I's and cross all their T's with what I'm about to say, and they're still depressed. I understand that. But the large, and I mean the large majority of cases of depression, come because somebody is living a life of sin, and sin has depressed their spirit. Sin has sat down on their spirit and has begun to crush it. Depression comes about when uh, our expectations are not met over a long period of time. And then we get to that long period of time where our spirit begins to get broken. And usually the final crushing blow is that we don't really see how things could ever turn around. We slip into a state of depression. Sometimes that sin comes from others. It's not even our own sin that can depress it uh, uh depress us you say how do i get out of that funk how do i get out of this depression well when you daily praise the lord and then daily confess your sin which is the cause of your depression and then you begin thanking god for all the good that you have this action this action eliminates and shoes away the sin And it's depressing effects. I've not met too many Christians who spend 25 minutes a day thanking God for how good they are. And they get up and go, well, I'm just so depressed. Usually after you've spent a good 25 minutes just praising God and thanking Him for what He's given you, it, it is almost impossible to remain depressed. Almost impossible. How does my time of thanksgiving change me? Well, it eliminates my complaining. It elevates my blessings. It eliminates spiritual depression. Let me give you quickly here number four. Let's talk about my supplication for others. My supplication for others. And as I've explained this to you, the church, many times, and I hope that you follow either this model or one similar to it, spend time praising God. And then spend time confessing your sin. And then spend time thanking God for the good in your life. Let me just tell you what I have learned after years of following this model is that at this point, I feel like uh, my spirit is in tune with God. I feel that the, the cares of the world have washed off of me. I feel as though God has taken His water hose of holiness and sprayed all of the filthy sin out of my heart and cleaned me up. And now, as I'm getting ready to enter into His presence, I'm going to enter the throne room of God, as Hebrews tells us, and I'm going to uh, come boldly into the throne of grace. Now I feel as though my spirit, spirit is right, my perspective is right, and I'm uh, uh, cleansed up, uh, cleaned up and cleansed from my sin, now I can begin to ask God for things on behalf of others. Now I can do that in a way where God is intent and wants to hear. When I Come to God on your behalf as I do pray regularly for those who attend and are members of this church. I pray daily for the the leadership team of our church. I take needs I know you have before God. And I begin to pray for you. I begin to pray for our missionaries. I begin to pray for my wife and my children. I begin to pray and ask God to uh, uh, do something great and special in their lives. Not only does God uh, hear my prayers on, on you all's behalf, and on our country's behalf, and all those other things, God begins to change me because I am praying for you. And it's a beautiful thing. Letter A notice this my supplication for others brings about obedience. Turn over to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, first book of the New Testament there. Matthew. Chapter number 22, my supplicating, going to God on the behalf of others, it brings about obedience in my life. It brings me, it changes me from a spirit of disobedience or a place of disobedience to a place of greater obedience. Or maybe better put, it brings me from a place of less obedience to a place of full-blown biblical obedience. Look at Matthew 22, verse 35. Then one of them, which was a lawyer... Asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and all thy mind. Now, this man only asked for the first commandment, but Jesus is going to get in the second one. Uh, this is the first and great commandment, and the second is likened to it. Look here. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Christian, can you think of a greater way of loving your neighbor as yourself? than praying for them. I can't think of a greater way for me to be a blessing to any of you in here than for me to get down on my knees, get into the throne room of God, and ask Him to help you. I can't think of a greater way. And if I'm going to be in obedience with Christ, if I'm going to be more in obedience with Christ when it comes to loving my neighbor as myself, then I need to spend time praying for those that God has placed in my life. So how does supplicating for others Change me. How does it make me more like Jesus Christ? Well, it brings me into greater obedience. Letter B, notice it, grows my burden. It grows my burden. Galatians chapter 6 verse 2 says this, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The beauty of church is that we help bear one another's burdens. What does that mean? Is that just... Hyperbole, preacher talk, uh, religious gibberish. It isn't. What does it mean to bear somebody's burdens? Think about someone who's carrying a heavy emotional load or intellectual load. Look, every one of us comes in here having fought battles this week. Every person. You're all carrying something. You walk into the door of this church and you're carrying something. And if you're going to be biblical... You'll find a brother or sister in Christ that you trust and you'll help give them part of that burden so they can help you carry it. That's what the beauty of church is. It's. A place where we come and help bear one another's burdens. Part of what Sunday school is supposed to be, the adult Bible study hour is supposed to be, is that there is a time of exchanged prayer requests. And you pray for each other throughout the week in a small group setting. And you know what each other's struggles are. You're going to God together and you're bearing those burdens. And so as I spend time uh, supplicating for you and you spend time supplicating for me, what, how is God changing me? Well, not only am I in greater obedience with Christ, I also have my burden grown for you and others. Bearing someone's burden means that you allow them to share emotional or intellectual struggles that they are battling. And bearing that burden with them is an agreement that you're going to carry that need to the throne room of God alongside with them. You're going to partner in prayer with them, let her Notice that uh, supplicating for others increases my compa- my compassion. My compassion. Turn over to James chapter five. The wrong I, I gave uh, the wrong reference out. Sorry about that, Pastor Dave. James five. Look at verse sixteen. Turn over there with me, if you would. The Bible says there. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another, that ye may be healed. Effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man what does it do? It availeth much. Christian, you've been commanded to love your enemies. It's hard to do, isn't it? You've been commanded to comfort the feeble-minded. The White Oak Baptist Church. There are a handful of people that come here to many of our various ministries and uh, to our services. And um, they might be a little socially inept. They might be what I would label as a high-maintenance church member. They yank on the leadership team a little bit harder than everybody else. And as you give to them, you feel the compassion tank beginning to run dry. Let me just say, I experience this a lot. I experience this a lot. Um... When your compassion tank begins to run out, how do you get that compassion tank filled back up? You get down on your knees and you begin to pray for that person. And God puts that pump, that compassion pump in. And a God with endless compassion begins to fill that up. You can get back off off your knees. And that person who's yanking on you, whether it's someone at church, someone in your personal life, I'm not talking about enabling someone who has a bad habit. I'm talking about loving someone biblically and not shoving them to the side and giving up on them. Why? Because you're spending time praying for them. You're supplicating for them. and God gives you that compassion. Letter D, notice that my, my, uh, my supplication for others motivates me to do my part. If you want to, if you're taking notes, jot these verses down. Let me encourage you to go back and look at them later. I'm going to... Give you the verses and instead of reading them, I'm just going to kind of recap this quickly so we can finish up the message tonight. Acts chapter one, verse fourteen. Acts chapter two, verse fourteen, Acts chapter two, verse thirty seven, and Acts chapter two, verse forty one. So one fourteen, two fourteen, two thirty seven, two forty one. Here's what these verses tell us. These verses tell us that uh, the, uh, the disciples, after Jesus ascended, they gathered in an upper room for this purpose prayer. And supplication. So, they were praying and supplicating. God sent the Holy Spirit. Tongues of fire on their head. Uh, a unique situation there. And then, chapter 2, verse 14, tells us that Peter uh, stood up with the eleven. He began to preach the gospel, and God took the words out of his mouth and translated into the air in a whole bunch of different languages, uh, also known as speaking in tongues there. And the people that heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, verse 37, tells us that these people that heard the gospel were Pricked in their hearts by the Holy Spirit. And verse 41 tells us that 3,000 of them were saved and baptized that day into the church. Now, what happened here? Because Paul, or rather Peter and the disciples, had spent a lot of time in prayer praying for Jerusalem, they were motivated to get up off their knees. And go stand in in the town square where thousands of people could hear him, they were motivated to do their part. Do you know that for those people to get saved, there were two different, uh, uh, actions at work? There was the disciples' sermon, but there was the Holy Spirit pricking. Do you know that had they not preached, the Holy Spirit wouldn't have pricked? But do you know if the Holy Spirit had not pricked, they wouldn't have been saved? Both played a factor. Both played a factor. Now listen, it's not enough. Please hear me right here. Alright, woke our teenagers up in the back. Amen. Um, It's not enough for you just to pray. Prayer is to move you to action. Prayer is to get you to do something. Listen, you can pray and pray and pray and pray and pray that God will supply bus drivers for our church. But somebody's got to get up and get their CDL so we can have a bus driver for the church. Now, you might be uh, uh, in a place where you cannot physically do that. But you can pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. God will supply teachers uh, for our Sunday school department. And God will supply uh, nursery workers for our nursery. But if you're not willing to get up off your back feet and say, I'll do my part and let God fill in the rest, then it's never going to happen. How does praying for others consistently change me? Well, it motivates me to do my part. Number five, and lastly, notice my personal supplication. I have prayed. Uh, I have shared with the church that when I pray for myself, I pray that God gives me three things, His power, His love, and His wisdom, that I will operate out of those three areas, His power, His love, and His wisdom. Let me give you an A and a B quickly, and we'll be done here. Letter A, notice. Rather, than A, B, and a C. I'll move through them quickly. Letter A, notice that uh, my supplication for myself reminds me that I am a steward. It reminds me that I'm a steward. 1 Corinthians 4.2 Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Now, as I go to God in prayer and ask Him to fulfill my needs, you know what it reminds me? It reminds me that everything I have belongs to God and came from God. But as I pray for God to supply my need, I'm reminded who owns Where the source is. You know why you're so possessive over your stuff? Because you've lost sight of the fact that God is the owner and you are the steward. That house you live in is not yours. It's God. God's. And he lets you live there. That car you're dri- you drive, that's not your car. That's God's car and He allows your name to be on the title. Those clothes that you're wearing, that fancy handbagger purse that you carry, uh, uh, those uh, uh, the, the, the nice things that you have, they belong to God. And when we pray and ask God to fulfill our needs, I am changed in my thinking from believing that I own it to being reminded that it is God that owns it and I steward it. Letter B, we see that uh, uh, a supplication for myself, it motivates me to live by the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, it's through the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. You know what I have learned is that if every day I will yield myself to the Holy Spirit, I get to have all of these things evidenced in my life. My prayer time for personal needs is... Is a great reminder that my flesh can't and that his spirit working in me and through me can. That's how praying changes me. Letter C. And lastly, uh, supplicating on behalf of myself, it empties me of self reliance. What does Romans thirteen fourteen say? It says, But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. My Bible's closed. I'm going to wind it down right here. Please hear what I'm about to say. Christian, you are missing out on the 13, 14, 15 items I shared tonight if you are not praying consistently. You're going to become a selfish, complaining, self-reliant, possessive person that has a hard time extending mercy to others when you're wronged if you're not praying. You're walking with the Lord daily. You're spending serious time with Him in these areas. God will keep giving you that fresh perspective. He will continue to change you. How about it tonight? How about it tonight? We talk about praying a lot in church. Are you doing it? Are you benefiting from it? Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed tonight. Lord, I ask that You help us to consider our prayer life. Lord, I shotgun style gave... All kinds of different areas tonight that could have touched many different hearts, many different ways. And Lord, would you help us to be honest with ourselves about our prayer lives? There are some in the room that are older. There are some in the room that are younger. May age not be an excuse that keeps us from prayer. There are some in the room that are healthy. There are others in the room that battle with chronic illnesses. May sickness not be an excuse that keeps us from prayer. Lord, may we not make excuses, but may we just learn to pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet. How about it tonight, Christian? The altar is open. How about it tonight? Is God changing you? While you pray, it's time we quit trying to change God through our prayers. We allow God to change us through our prayers. Oh, to have a church of people where God is changing them by their prayer life.